Well, good morning, IBC family. I would like to say before I start my sermon, uh, right up front, happy Father's Day. I know that, I don't know how much you have planned today, but I do know this, that uh, I love the fact that we acknowledge not only Mother's Day, but also Father's Day. I was reading an article this past week about the power of presence and uh, specifically targeting or acknowledging fathers and really exhorting fathers to be present. And uh, it spoke to my own heart because as if often, as maybe you can relate, I know that although I may be physically present at home, I may not be present. And uh, as I said before, you might be relate to me where it's like your mind might be other, other places. You might be uh, either focused on other things. You might be processing other things. And it was just an encouragement, but also an exhortation to dads. Like, dads, be present with your kids. Dad, be present with your spouse. Dads, be available, not just by physical presence, but also mentally, socially, and spiritually. One thing I'm very grateful for is this fact that our Heavenly Father is always present. Our Heavenly Father is always with us. As He promises, He promises to never leave us, to never forsake us. He's not just saying, hey, I'm here because I'm in all places at all times, but He's also saying, I hear you every single time you speak. In fact, I hear every thought that you have, and I care, and I'm here to minister to your heart. And so even though we may struggle as fathers sometimes to be fully present as we ought, we know that our Heavenly Father is always present, is always available, and He desires to hear from us. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles. I know it's going to come on your screens there, but turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, and we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. The title of the sermon, as you probably already saw, is The Heart of the Problem is the Problem of the Heart. And in Matthew chapter 15, you'll see why that title seems appropriate. So I'm going to read the first 20 verses here for us, and then we'll unpack what the Lord has for us. By the way, I am reading initially from the New Living Translation. I usually oftentimes refer or restate in the ESV translation But sometimes just getting the the narrative flow, I think, is best uh, captured by reading the New Living Translation. So I'm going to read from that translation, starting verse 1. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. And Jesus replied, And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? And Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. The words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. You know, we live in a world today that is oftentimes driven by symptom-driven solutions. For example, if you are experiencing some sort of pain, what do you do? You take a pill, and the pain magically goes away, at least for a period of time, or at least it's kind of suppressed for a period of time. If you're anxious or feeling a, a perpetual state of anxiety, what do you do? Well, they even have pills for that, actually. Or if you're experiencing relational strife, oftentimes we go to the, 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 the relational gurus and we follow their five easy steps to fix our relational problems. But have you noticed that until you discover the root cause of your pain, that only then can you begin to take steps to eliminate or reduce that pain. I think it's okay to say I didn't actually run this by him or not, but Pastor Tom is currently seeing a physical therapist right now. And because he's experiencing a little bit of back ache. And as he discovered, the back ache is actually a symptom of a much deeper problem called poor posture, poor sitting posture over many, many years. And so now he's in the process of kind of reversing what uh, a habit of many years and, and what, how he came to discover his poor posture was because of all of a sudden my back is beginning to hurt. And some muscles, which he did not know before, are beginning to get weakened and now they're reversing that process. Once again, they're getting to the root of the problem. Or have you noticed that until you identify the, the reason for your relational conflict, that only then can you begin to foster reconciliation and healing in your relationships. It's ironic that most of our conflicts, most of the root causes of our conflict are, and, and what we experience as a result are really tied up in very petty, silly things. In fact, I would say that you know, in all transparency, the most heated debates and the most heated conversations between me and my wife are really over the silliest of things. 
And then when we go back to the root cause, it's usually just a point of misunderstanding or we took something the wrong way and then it just explodes. The point that I'm getting at is this. We can deal with symptoms all day long. We can struggle with complications our whole life, whether it be relational or physical ailments or addictions, whatever it may be, but until you, until I identify the source of these issues, until we identify the root of the problem, only then can we hope for positive change. Only then can we make constructive adjustments that usually lead to better outcomes. Spiritually speaking, we're talking about the heart. We're specifically targeting the health of your heart and my heart. You see, the root cause of much of our distress and conflict is what already exists in our hearts. And until we make adjustments on a heart level, until we undergo spiritual heart surgery, only then can we expect to see change on the surface, either in our actions, our words, and even in our thoughts. This is really what Jesus was confronting the Pharisees with in his interaction with them. He was seeking to confront their hypocrisy and really to confront them with like a mirror of their own hearts, as well as he was seeking to explain to his disciples what was really going on, what God truly cared about in our fellowship. You see, Jesus exposes the, the facade, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees by saying, you think that you're religious, but you're not really godly. You appear to be godly, but you are actually unholy because you ultimately follow a standard, a, a form of godliness of your own making. And following the confrontation, Jesus explains to disciples that the reason why these Pharisees act the way they do, the reason why these Pharisees say the things that they do is because it's a reflection of their heart. It shows them what's really in their hearts. And so the point that I believe Jesus is emphasizing in this interaction is this. What appears on the surface reflects what's below the surface. Your actions, your words, and your thoughts reflect what is truly in your heart. So if you want to know how you're really doing, if you want to know what's really in your heart, if you want to know the true condition of your heart, whether it is healthy or whether it is sick, then you need to look no further than what you say and what you do in what you think. I think even more helpful sometimes for us is that we have others in our life that will point out things, that will reveal certain aspects about us because oftentimes we think of ourselves as better than we really are. It's kind of in contrast to what Paul says in Romans 12, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. And yet, we oftentimes think of ourselves as kind of the the median, or at least definitely above the median, and people are either to the right or left of us. In fact, people sometimes can be the most advantageous in the sense that they identify blind spots in our lives. 
After all, the nature of blind spots is this. You don't see them. They can only be observed by others. So in our passage this morning, Jesus reveals a crucial blind spot, some, actually two crucial blind spots of the Pharisees. He exposes their low view of Scripture and their high view of tradition. Secondly, he uncovers their flesh-fueled pursuit of holiness. And I believe as a result, Jesus also exposes what's in our hearts. Jesus points out some similar blind spots that might be true of us. So what's the question that we're going to pose here? I believe the question that's appropriate right now is this. What is really in our hearts? What might our blind spots be? I believe the first blind spot, again, as Jesus exposes here, is this. Blind spot number one is upholding the Word of God too little and upholding our traditions too much. Let me say that again. The one blind spot that the Pharisees did not know or understand and that we must come to grips with is this. We, the blind spot is upholding God's Word too little and upholding our traditions too much. Listen to verses 2 and 3 of Matthew 15. Jesus says, why do your, the Pharisees are asking this question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus answers them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? Now, what were the commandments of God that were identified in Scripture? Well, the first one Jesus identifies is in Exodus chapter 20. It's the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and your mother. Actually, that word for honor needs to be rightly understood. Sometimes we look at honor as just a show of respect, and that is true. But actually, honor in this context, honor almost always in the Old Testament, was an honor of financial assistance. And so what Jesus is going to identify later is that this honor that we are called to show our parents is not just respect, it's not just a love, it's not just being civil with one another, but it's actually being willing and, and taking on the responsibility of financial assistance when they get older. The second commandment of God in Scripture is in Exodus 21, one chapter later. Jesus says, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So the question is, how did the Pharisees interpret this? How did the Pharisees either, re- how did the Pharisees reject these clear commands of God? Well, they rejected them like this. They upheld their t- a tradition that allowed people to be exempt from assisting their parents financially so long as the gift was dedicated to God. In other words, if a parent asked for financial assist- assistance from their son, their son didn't, and their son did not want to give them that financial assistance, even though he was obligated to through the law, all he had to say was, Corbin. Corbin, which means this money is dedicated to God. And then they were exonerated. They were exempt from supporting their parents' financial need. Now, the loophole that is exposed in this pathetic tradition 
was that the son did not actually have to give the gift to God. All he had to do was say that it was dedicated to God. And then he was exempt from honoring his parents. You see, the point here is that these traditions passed down from centuries past became regarded as equal, if not more important, than Scripture itself. In fact, some traditions today, right? Some religions today, some even under the umbrella of Christianity today, the Catholics will not just look at the Word of God, but they, they have the interpretation of the Pope, or, and they also have the Apocrypha. They have the traditions that are passed down over the centuries. Or Mormons have the, the Pearl of Great Price and the Book of Mormon, and they also have the Doctrines and Covenants. All those are kind of equal authorities, not just Scripture. In the case of these Jews and Judaism, it's convenient if that, they, if that they did not want to follow or obey a command, then they could choose to obey a tradition that exonerated from that command. It's interesting how convenient it is that if you do not like the clear teaching of Scripture or agree with what Scripture taught, then you could defer to other traditions that were more palatable, uh, that were more likable, that were more self-serving. And yet, isn't this the real motivation behind picking and choosing what you like in Scripture and what you choose to ignore? Isn't the real motivation behind this kind of syncretism, syncretistic religion, or isn't the real motivation behind picking and choosing what we want to follow or not follow really the motivation of self? This is what I want. Paul even warns of this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, a warning to Timothy, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Fact is, self-serving desires or predetermined desires will always lead us away from the clear teaching of Scripture and to a distorted interpretation of Scripture or to teachings that better align with what we want to hear, with traditions that are more familiar to us, with per, uh, or towards practices that are more comfortable to us, messages that are more relevant to us, opinions that are more PC or acceptable to us. How easy it is, brothers and sisters, to believe that some of the things we think or do are biblical because we've always thought or done it this way. How easy it is to think that some of the things that we say are biblical because they have been espoused in the church for as long as we can remember. How easy it is to confuse practices described in Scripture with practices that are prescribed in Scripture. What I mean by that is 
descriptions of what takes place historically do not not necessarily mean they are universally prescriptive for us today and vice versa. And so though you and I may not be influenced by ancient Jewish traditions and maybe the customs that they were used to following, we do have our own traditions, right? We do have our own, what we oftentimes refer to as sacred cows, And it is these traditions or these sacred cows that are practices or ways of doing things or even perspectives that have been around long enough to be assumed as the right way, the best way, maybe the only way. So what might some of our traditions be? What might be some of our sacred cows No doubt we can list off a laundry list full of them, but there's just a few that I want to highlight for us this morning. I believe one tradition or one sacred cow that is common in the church today is that programs, programs, and more programs are a sign of a healthy church. After all, a healthy church has something for everyone, right? Every stage of life, every problem of life, every want in life, there's a program tailor-made for you. A healthy church has a lot going on, right? The busier we are, the more on mission we are, or the more dedicated we are. But is that, in fact, true? Especially in regard to the fact that we have one mission. Sometimes the methodology becomes the timeless truth instead of a means to an ultimate end. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the program that it's all about keeping a program alive when we don't bother to ask the question, is this even relevant today? Does this even serve our church today? Are people, in fact, fostered or move in a deeper discipleship process through this ministry or program today? I think another tradition or a sacred cow that could easily be put forward is that of Sunday school. Sunday school actually started in the 18th century, and the whole point of Sunday school was to help the poor kids who worked all day long to have an education on the weekend. And in the 19th century, we see that the the churches in America and the denominations in America adopted the same model and kind of Christianized uh, Sunday school. Sunday school was not a sacred thing. It was, and of course, Religion was always incorporated into the church at that time. That's obviously changed a lot today. But in the 19th century, the churches incorporated into their church model, and it became basically an, a kind of a no, uh, an essential part of what it means to do Sunday service. Even non-Christian parents would oftentimes prioritize Sunday school for their kids, even if they were not participants of a church. And the thought process goes something like this. I had a good experience as a child in Sunday school, and so I want my kids to have the same experience. Or the thinking might go like this, those who are truly committed to Jesus participate in Sunday school. Sometimes I kind of wonder, and again, this is not a knock on Sunday schools. Again, we have to just be open-handed with every ministry and every program, right? Because they are a means to an ultimate end. But sometimes we have this idea that if we come in on a Sunday morning that we not only get the service, but we have the Sunday school. And it used to be at one time we'd also have Sunday night service. 
And the day was jam-packed full of, in a sense, almost like a spiritual Thanksgiving dinner that was supposed to carry us through the entire week until we made it to the next dinner. And of course, there's been some resistance and pushback and there's been some changes over the years. But we have to open-handedly say, is Sunday school a non-negotiable? Another tradition for some is in regard to specific Bible translations. Now, most people don't make a big deal about this, but some are very adamant about this idea that the King James Version is, well, God's version. And, uh, and, and they think that the King James Version is the, most, is the closest translation to the original autographs. But if you understand criti- a textual criticism, then you understand that it actually isn't the closest. I'm not saying it's a bad translation. It's a great translation. But oftentimes our loyalty to the King James Version is not because we've done uh, all our due diligence and research behind that translation. It's because we've grown up with that translation. It's familiar to us. We're used to it. In fact, when we read Scripture, we expect it to sound a certain way. I've even struggled with that, even going from like ESV to a New Living Translation. On one hand, I love it, but on the other hand, if I'm going to memorize Scripture, I feel like it needs to be memorized in a certain translation because it sounds more biblical. Another tradition is the, the practice of thinking that as long as I invite people to church, I've fulfilled my evangelistic duty. Of course, we would all encourage people to practice, to, to, to do this practice, to invite people to church, but oftentimes we can think or have the mindset in thinking that as long as I get people in the door, then it's the pastor's job to kind of do the rest. It's the pastor's job to share the gospel of Jesus. It's the pastor's job to kind of connect the dots for this person who he doesn't know, who I do know. As long as I get him in the door, the pastor can take over from here, goes the thinking. But Scripture teaches that you are commissioned to bring the good news to people. In other words, evangelism does not rest on, evangelism is not dependent on the people coming to the church, but evangelism has always been the church going to the people because you are the church. The gospel is advanced not because we bring people into a brick-and-mortar address. The gospel is advanced because we are doing our, we are fulfilling our responsibility. We are telling people of the good news. I always appreciate what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, 14, and 15. How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the Scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. This is not just a passage of Scripture for missionaries. This is a passage of Scripture for all followers of Jesus Christ. There's a newer tradition that is more current though I don't think it's true of us necessarily, but it's this tradition or this perspective in thinking that we need to, have, we need to make church cool. It needs to be Sunday cool. 
I'm looking at Corey Durbin right now, and his mask says Sunday cool, so that's why I said that. But the fact is, we almost desire, or we think that uh, we, have to, we have to make Jesus more relevant. We have to make Jesus more palatable. We have to G- make Jesus more acceptable. And so we have this kind of this hipster approach to church. The thinking goes that, uh, that Jesus will not be received by people in its plain sense. So I had to kind of like put makeup on Jesus. I had, to, I had to make him look better than he really is. And the irony is that Jesus... Neither Jesus nor his ministry was hip or trendy. You see, Jesus hung out with outcasts. Jesus even said in Luke 14, to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to your feast. In other words, church in Jesus' day was not full of cool hipsters that had it all together, but it was full of broken people who needed a Savior. And should it be any different for us today? I think one final tradition I would like to highlight, especially since we are trusting God for a new worship pastor, is that of worship, music, and style. You see, one current trend is to have worship music or our worship ministry remind us of our favorite band or our favorite concerts. And thankfully, I don't think we at IBC have really gone too far down the rabbit hole on this one, but it doesn't mean that we're not exempt. It doesn't mean that we can't be tempted to go in that direction. We can all be tempted uh, to expect our worship experience to be visually stimulating and emotionally moving and, and, and a sound that reminds me of my favorite artist. Now, of course, we could ask this question. Does that mean that music should not be emotional? Does that mean mu- or worship should not be stimulating? Of course not. Of course it should be, right? Anytime that you and I are ushered into the presence of God, we will be moved spiritually. We will be moved emotionally. We will be moved physically. But we can also confuse our emotions by thinking that because I feel good by singing this song, this must be an inner working of the Holy Spirit. But that's not always the case. Just because we feel good because we're hearing a song that we, that we prefer does not mean that is a work of the Spirit. It could just mean that your preferences have been appeased. The fact is, our worship can quickly become idolatrous instead of God-glorifying. But I think in contrast to trendy, concert-flavored worship, the contrast is also the acknowledgement that hymns are not sacred. Let me say that again. Hymns are not sacred. Now, don't get me wrong, I love hymns. I grew up on the hymns. I grew up worshiping Jesus with a hymnal book. We oftentimes don't even know what that is today, but that's what I grew up worshiping. And it was a piano, maybe an organ at times, and there was someone leading like this from the front. That's what, that was what I was used to as a child growing up. But I think somehow 
there are some of us that have adopted this kind of this mindset or this opinion that hymns are what Jesus sings. That 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 and instead of admitting that hymns are just one style of song to be sung. Now, please, I understand I'm probably. Um, jumping on people a little bit here. I know that I'm probably uh, stepping on toes by saying what I'm saying, but I believe hymns to be, I do believe that hymns are one of the better style of song to foster a stronger congregational response. I do believe that. That's what we're here to do in the first place as a church family, right? To sing together, to sing as one body with one voice and hymns very much accomplish that purpose. But we also need to look to Scripture, right? We need to look to Scripture and see what Scripture says in regards to music, especially in regards to style and music preference. And I believe one of the clearest prescriptive passages on music is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Paul says this, Be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to explain how we are filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as Paul reflects here, and if you were to do an exhaustive search on music style and preference and in a sense what God mandates you would find very quickly that style and preference are spoken on very little to none so the fact is if scripture is silent on these issues then we should not be as dogmatic about them either if there's kind of an open expression about him, again, the principle behind worship is, does this build up the body? Does this foster us to be spirit-filled? And if that is the fruit of what comes out of worship, regardless of style, then praise be to God. You can have your opinion. You can have your preference. It's okay. We all do. But may we not unbiblically say that, no, these are the appropriate. These are kind of the, the, the more sanctified styles and preferences and songs as opposed to others which may in fact encourage them into the worship of King Jesus. Yes, we do need to exercise discernment in what we sing. Yes, our songs must be biblical. Yes, we need to, to, to think clearly and be very calculated in the songs we choose, but there is flexibility in our style. Like I said, I could probably keep going on with all kinds of observed traditions and, and normalities in the church today, but I won't. I do want you to understand this, however. Traditions are not the problem. Traditions are not the problem. The problem is what we do with them. The problem is how we elevate them to such a high level that they are deemed crucial for following Jesus. But as Jesus says in verse 9, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the point that Jesus is really addressing here, the point he's emphasizing here is this, that God's word, the, the Bible, must be our ultimate authority and our ultimate standard for all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
Scripture must be the place that we start as we interpret anything that's going on in our world. Scripture must be the predominant influence for every decision and practice both within the church as well as in our personal lives. I appreciate what David Platt said when he says this, as long as the thoughts of man are central in the church, the worship of man will be central in the church. Alternatively, as long as the truth of God is central in the church, then the worship of God will be central in the church. A word-saturated church leads to God-glorifying worship. So, brothers and sisters, my prayer for you and for me is this, that we would be people of the Word. That the Word of God, the Scriptures, would not only be our starting point, but we would never depart from it. It's okay to have friendly conversations and even debates about things, but in the end, let God speak, and may, we not, may our traditions not override or distort or confuse or dilute the clear mandates given in Scripture. So the first blind spot is elevating the word of, or upholding the Word of God too little and upholding our traditions too much. But a second blind spot Jesus points out from the Pharisees and explains to his, his disciples is this. It's thinking that my outward religiosity, my outward practice, my, my, my Christian practices are sufficient to please God. In other words, it's thinking that heart transformation matters less than my outward religious activity. Thinking as long as I do the right thing and follow the rules, then I will be right with God. But listen how Jesus how to, listen to how Jesus responds to this blind spot. He says in verse 8, these people, honor, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth, verse 17 says, goes into the mouth, passes through the stomach, and, and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The fact is, brothers and sisters, our actions and our words, and even our thoughts reveal what is really in our hearts. You may think that you're a good person. You may be convinced that your heart is mostly good, at least better than most. But what you say, and what you do, and what you think, both privately and in the presence of others, reveals the true condition of your heart. It reveals how healthy your heart really is. Even as was, is contrasted many times over in Scripture, the fruits of the flesh are evident, right? Even Jesus 
makes mention of this here in Matthew 15, verse 19. He says, the fruits of the flesh, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. But as we see in Galatians, right? In Galatians, we see the fruits of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Sort of begs the question, what's in your heart? And the way we know what's in our heart is, what's coming out of your mouth? What are you saying to and about others? How are you treating and relating to others? What comes to your mind when you think about someone? The fact is, how you answer these questions reflects what is really in your heart. It reflects how healthy your heart truly is. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, what pleases God, what God really wants from us is not our sacrifice. It's not what we do for Him. It's not our outward religious practices and patterns and and habits. That's not what pleases God. No, what God wants from us, what what pleases God, is a heart that is devoted to Him. It is a heart that is consecrated, which means fully dedicated to Him. It It is a heart that is conformed and surrendered to Him. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Or listen to Psalm 15. It's a short psalm. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Here's the answer. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. I appreciate what James Boyce says in his commentary. He says this, these descriptions in Psalms, these, what Jesus is emphasizing here in Matthew 15 is this, this is the character. This is the character of those who please God. But the only people who will ever have such a character are those who have had their nature changed by God. You see, brothers and sisters, God is less concerned with our outward religious activity. God is less concerned for what we do for Him. No, what God cares about most, what He desires most of you and what he, what he desires most of me is that our hearts would be calibrated toward Him. 
That, that our hearts would be, be transformed. That we would serve Him and honor Him and obey Him and worship Him from a heart that loves Him. In other words, it's not what we do for Him to receive His love. It's because we have already received His love. Therefore, we respond to that love by worshiping Him. A pure heart, sanctified by the Spirit of God. This is what pleases God. J.C. Ryle, a guy that I've often looked up to, he's with the Lord, but he's left a lasting legacy in his ministry. He says this, what is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to Him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? It's the circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? It is to obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with all your heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts of faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give me thine heart. Brothers and sisters, it all centers on the heart. And oftentimes the, the, problem, the, the, the heart of the problem is the problem of our heart. What Jesus wants most importantly from us is a heart that is surrendered to Him. It is a heart that is transformed by Him because a heart that is transformed by God is a heart that in turn can glorify God. You see, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to give us a new heart, to take our heart of stone and to make it a heart of flesh. Not the weakness of the flesh, but a heart of flesh that was moldable. A heart of flesh that that could be transformed into the likeness of Christ. You see, God looked at our pitiful state. He looked at the waywardness of our heart, the weakness of our heart, and He says, I need to give you a new heart so that you have the ability to do what is right. And so Jesus came to die to take away the guilt that enslaved us by the power of sin. That we might, as Jeremiah says, or Ezekiel says, Jeremiah says to give us a new heart. And therefore, that we might glorify God. Well, Father, right now we we just say thank you. In the midst of a world that is all over the place. We're seeing levels of chaos in which we never thought either were possible or that we'd see in our lifetime. But in the midst of all the noise, in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the unrest, in the midst of all the struggle, in the midst of all the fear, Father, Jesus, your truth never changes. And our mission has never changed. 
the message has never changed. And that is there is a God who loves this world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So Father, right now, we just say thank you for eternal life. Thank you for having pity on us. Thank you for loving us and pursuing us and saving us. We acknowledge the fact that, God, you would have been perfectly righteous if you did nothing. We accept the fact that, Father, even if you didn't do that, you would still be perfect in all your ways. But, Father, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your mercy. Thank you that we are the recipients of those gifts. We ask that not only would it be the process of a our own transformation. But Father, that we would be eager to give that to others, to proclaim the good news that God loves them, that Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves, and that we can have the hope, the confident assurance of eternal life. Father, to that end, empower us to be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.